The Bible reading today is from 1 Samuel 15 on page 225 of the Pew Bibles. Samuel says to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the Kenites, Go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them. For you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Hivalah to Shur, near the eastern border of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone down to Gilgal. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. But Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? Saul answered, The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, Although you were once more in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission, saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Wage war against them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag the king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, and so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me, so that I may worship the Lord. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught 
hold of the hem of his robe, and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today, and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who was the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being, and he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned. Please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me, so that I may worship the Lord your God. So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, Surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul. Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, church. Uh, please keep your Bibles open as we conclude our series on Saul from 1 Samuel chapters 9 to 15. Uh, well, this morning I want to play a little game with you. It's called Who Am I? Uh, I'm going to give you some facts about a person in history, and I want you to guess who it is. And once you know who it is, why don't you call it out, and we'll see who uh, gets it first. Uh, so, who am I? I was born on the 24th of August, 1759, uh, in East Riding of Yorkshire. I'm the only son of Robert and Elizabeth. When I was young, I was sickly, uh, a delicate child with poor eyesight. Uh, I came from a wealthy family. I went to Hull Grammar School, and at the age of 17, uh, I studied at St. John's College in Cambridge. I began a political career in 1780 uh, as an independent member of Parliament for Yorkshire. Uh, any guesses yet? Uh, in 1785, I accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Saviour. Uh, in 1870, uh, no, 1787. I met Thomas Clarkson, amongst others, and through their efforts uh, that I was persuaded uh, to the cause to abolish slavery. Yes, well done, David Ashton. I'm Wilburn, uh, um, <laughs> William Wilberforce. Uh, through their efforts, um, uh, it took 20 years of hard work before the abolition bill was passed in the House of Lords in 1807. I died on the 29th of July, 1833. Who am I? I am William Wilberforce. Now, you're a, a student of history, and you wanted to understand William Wilberforce, who he was, what he was like, what he accomplished in life, then you must understand his role in the abolition of slavery. Uh, if you don't, you'll fail to appreciate him and the impact he's had in our world history. In a similar way, if you want to understand Saul, if you want to know what he's like and what he achieved in his life, then the passage that you should choose to understand him of all the passages we've looked at over the last few weeks is this passage that we're looking at today, 1 Samuel chapter 15. To understand Saul, we must understand today's passage. Today's passage is arguably the most defining account of Saul's life, and it can be broken up into three main sections, verses 1 to 3, God's judgment on the Malachites. And then we'll see God's judgment on Saul himself from verse 4 to 23 and 34 to 35, 
saw appearing, uh, 24 to 35, sorry, saw appearing to repent. So let's have a look at the first section of today's passage, God's judgment on the Malachites. Uh, Samuel begins by reminding Saul that he's God's anointed. And as God's anointed, what that means above all else is that he must obey God's word. So verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, I am the the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. And so what must he do? He must listen now to the message from the Lord. And what's this message from God? What's he to do? What's Saul to obey? Verse 2, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Malachites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go. Attack the Amalekites, totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put to death men and women, children, infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. Now we remember how much Saul loves donkeys. But he must put them, even these donkeys, to death. God's word to Saul is a very disturbing word, isn't it? It's a military command to wage war against an entire nation, the Amalekites, and to completely wipe them out and everything that belongs to them. And that makes us feel very uncomfortable, doesn't it? I mean, we read the Bible and we love passages about God's love and the story of Abraham. We love passages about God's grace and the story of the rainbow. But then when we read passages like the one we read today, when God tells his anointed, commands his anointed to wage war against a nation, to completely wipe this nation from the face of the earth, it makes us feel very uncomfortable. I mean, how can God do that? Well, why is it even in the Bible? Uh, Surely they could have just left this passage out. Well, as, as horrid as it is, the Bible is true to history. It hasn't been sanitized to be politically correct for us readers of the 21st century. It records for us what we must know of God and his relationship with this world. And when we come across passages that doesn't seem to make sense in our minds, it's important for us to understand the backstory, to understand the passage in its context. And so who are these Amalekites? Why is God commanding Saul, his anointed, to destroy them? Well, the backstory takes us to Exodus chapter 17. And what happened was this. Uh, God saves Israel as slaves from Egypt. They cross the Red Sea, which God parts for them. They're en route to Mount Sinai, where they're going to worship God and receive the Ten Commandments from God. But as they're en route and wandering the desert, as they're tired and weary... The Amalekites see them and pounce. They attack the Amalekites at their moment of weakness. It was a completely unprovoked and opportunistic attack. And so before the the Israelites entered the promised land, before Israel even became a nation, before Israel even had their chance to worship their God who had just saved them, they were attacked. And so Moses reminds them of what happens and what God will do to them in Deuteronomy chapter 25. We'll only read a couple of verses. Verse 17 of Deuteronomy 25. Remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. 
When you were weary and worn out, they met you on the journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. There's a story in the paper about a 30-year-old uh, woman. Uh, her name's Eden Medway. Uh, a couple of close friends just got engaged, and so she wanted to go out and, and celebrate with them. And so she gets all dressed up, makeup on. She looks stunning and beautiful. She goes out to a bar in Melbourne uh, to celebrate with her couple, uh, with her friends who just got mar- uh, engaged. They're having a great time, but then out of the blue, a man in the bar grabs her grabs her and throws her onto his shoulders, walks across the bar, forcibly kisses her, and as soon as she's able to get free of him and tries to escape, without any warning, he strikes her across the face. She says, I remember the cracking sound, I remember the sudden blinding pain, People race to her, they call the ambulance, paramedics take her to hospital, and the doctors tell her that her, she has fractures right across her face in multiple places. She needs surgery. They insert metal plates and pins into her skull just to keep her eye socket together. It takes us eight weeks before she can feel her teeth again. Six months before she can open her jaw wide enough so that she could take food. She has chronic headaches and can't sleep. This is what she said. I have nightmares about being forced into surgery or being told I've lost my sight. The slightest bump near my face will instantly recall the whip-crack pain of his first smashing into my skull. Fist, sorry, smashing into my skull. And following that is the tsunami of fear and hurt, anger and shame. Eden has suffered. And continues to discover it all because of an unprovoked attack from a stranger. And that's what it was like for the Israelites. But on much grander scale, the Amalekites attacked them at a time when they were most vulnerable. They weren't yet even a nation. They were simply slaves tasting freedom for the very first time in 430 years. And the Amalekites came and pounced on the slow and the weak. Yet God has been very patient with the Malachites. It's been 300 years since that incident. Yet they're still the same. We read of their weakness in verse 18 and 33. They're still sinners through and through. They haven't repented. They haven't changed their ways. God has been patient for 300 years. And so this passage, this command for Saul to completely destroy the Malachites, as horrid as it may seem, not only shows that God is slow to anger, but that he will right all wrongs. He's a just God and he will bring his judgment upon the wickedness of man. And just as we want the man who hurt Eden to be brought to justice, so the Israelites wanted the Amalekites to be brought to justice and this was the day that God answered that prayer. But just as God's judgment upon the Amalekites came upon the Malachites. God's judgment also came upon Saul. But for very different reasons. While the Malachites were judged for their wickedness, Saul is judged for his disobedience. 
In fact, in the original language, the verb or the, uh, to listen or to hear or to obey, that, that same word in the Hebrew repeats itself in this passage eight times. That's because the matter that matters in this chapter is the matter of hearing and listening and obeying to the word of God. Saul had one job to do, and that was to listen to God. Saul had one job to do, and that was to do God's work, to exact his justice, to completely destroy the Malachites, but he doesn't. And so this becomes the defining moment in Saul's life. If for Wilberforce, it was the abolition of slavery, for Saul, it was this. The writer doesn't want us to miss the point. We're told over and over again, Saul disobeys God. Saul doesn't listen to God. You see, even though he attacks the Amalekites in verse 7, he spares the king and the best of the plunder in verse 9. Have a look at verse 9. But Saul and the army spared. Notice who is doing the sparing. And this is an important point. But Saul and the army, Saul spares Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. God told Saul to spare no one and nothing. Yet notice he spares Agag and the choice animals. And so God, verse 11, regrets making Saul king. I regret that I've made Saul king because he has turned away from me. He has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. Does that remind you of another passage in the Bible? The same phrase is, is used when God looked upon the earth many, many years before. And what he saw was the wickedness of man during the days of Noah. And he said he regretted that he made man on the earth. And just as God had regretted, then now he regrets making Saul king over his people. This doesn't mean that uh, God lacked foresight, but rather it expresses his grief over their disobedience. Now, while God regrets and Samuel grieves, how's Saul feeling about it? What's he up to? Well, have a look at verse 12. It appears that he's feeling great. In fact, so good, he's celebrating and he erects a monument, not in God's honor, but in his honor. Because in Saul's mind, he's carried out the Lord's instructions. In verse 13, when Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I've carried out the Lord's instructions. You see, Saul's saying to Samuel, I've done a great job. I've listened to what God has said. I've, I, I, I've obeyed him 100%. I haven't left anything undone. Whatever God's asked me to do, I've done. But the evidence speaks louder than words. Verse 14, but Samuel said, What then is this bleating of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? And this is an opportunity for, Samuel, for Saul to come clean, isn't it? The evidence is right before you. You look around, you see the cattle and the sheep. It's very clear, you can't deny it. He spared some of the plunder. It's an opportunity for Saul to fess up and say, hey, you're right. It wasn't 100%, but maybe 99%. But look at what he does. Verse 15, Saul answered, the soldiers. 
Not, not me. I didn't do the sparing. The, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to, to, to what? To sacrifice to the Lord your God. But we totally destroyed the rest. And did you see, do you hear what Saul is saying here? Saul stands in the great tradition of sinners from the time of Adam. From the time of Adam who deny responsibility for their own sin and blame others for it. God, it wasn't me, it was the woman who you put in the garden with me. And the woman says, oh no, it wasn't wasn't me, it was that serpent who deceived me. Have you ever heard yourself say, oh, it's not my fault? Have you ever seen yourself point the finger and said, oh, he made me do it? Like Saul and Adam, we also stand in the tradition of sinners from the time of Adam to the time of Saul till today. My boss deserves it. Our government is unfair. The system's corrupt. It's not my fault. And when Samuel asked Saul point blank in verse 19, why didn't you obey God? He's given another opportunity to fess up. But he doesn't. He he keeps arguing, arguing, arguing. Blaming and arguing with Saul. I have obeyed, verse 20, but I did obey the Lord. I, I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. And what did he do? Brought back Agag the king. In one sentence, in his own defense, Saul provides us a brilliant study in the deceitfulness of sin. Sin blinds sinners to sinfulness. It it deceives us, making us think we're we're, we're obedient when we're actually not. Now, you know the history of slavery and how it was justified in Christian nations like Great Britain and America then you'll know that so-called Christians even use scripture to justify it. And so they'll refer to the curse of Ham in Genesis 9. Even though Noah cursed Ham's son Canaan, Canaan is dropped from the list. Ham is made black, for which the Bible does not make reference at all. So now Ham is suddenly a black person and the descendants of Ham are black. And they become the people of Africa, which has no basis in scripture. And so because Noah cursed Ham's son, Canaan, into slavery, then they must be the black Africans, the slaves of today. Or or they'll go to uh, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus where he commands slaves to obey their masters in Ephesians 6. Now we might not use scripture to justify slavery, but let me use church as an example. Do do we, for example, take on extra shifts or or, or go for a promotion? And it might mean missing church. But we say to ourselves, but but it means I'm making more money. And so I can give a bit more to church. Surely God will be pleased. Or, Or do we come to church regularly, week after week, and confess our sins, but actually don't mean it? and think that God would be pleased. You see, it's very easy for us to think we're obedient to God's word 
when we're only fooling ourselves like the way Saul was fooling himself. Look at his excuse for not killing all the livestock as he was commanded to do in verse 15. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to do what? To sacrifice to the Lord. Surely that is a noble thing to do. Maybe, maybe God just didn't realize how good the plunder is and how pleasing the aroma would be when they made sacrifices to him. They spare the best of the livestock to sacrifice to God, but whether it's true or not, whether it was from a noble heart or not, it doesn't matter. Because what matters to God is obedience and not sacrifices. You see, a clear conscience, no matter how right you think you are, is no guarantee that you're innocent. Saul's noble motive was nothing more but an illusion an excuse so that he might take some of the plunder for himself. Verse 22, but Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? You see, friends, you probably heard this before, like in the workplace. Just, just do whatever you want and apologize later. But not with God. He doesn't want you to get to the point where you have to apologize. To obey is better than sacrifice. To obey is better than sacrifice. And to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. What God wants is obedience and not excuses. Because to reject God's word is to reject God himself. And so since Saul rejected God as king over him, God rejected Saul as king over his people. Now you and I might not have a direct word from God like Saul did. But the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy that all scripture is God-breathed. It's good for rebuking, correcting, training, and teaching in righteousness. And so that means that every verse of every chapter of every book, of every testament, of the entire Bible is God's word to us. And so we must accept all God's word as it stands. We can't pick and choose what we like and not like, including this difficult passage in the Bible. The temptation, you see, for us is to hear what we want to hear. We want the Bible to tell us that we're okay that our lifestyle is acceptable, that our thoughts are pure, that our morality is good enough for God, that God is love and that everything is going to be all right. And when we see God after we die, we can say to him, we've done everything you've required. I go to church, I take communion, I volunteer my time, but we must peel friends behind the polite exterior of our upstanding lives and look deep beneath the layers and let the word of God penetrate our hearts so that there is no room for sin to deceive us for there is no substitute for external worship for internal obedience lip service for heart devotion friends we must recognize that to disobey God's word is the most foolish thing we can ever do it is to say to God, you're not right, but we are right. 
Friends, what we need is not to do better, but is to seek God's forgiveness and to repent. To turn our hearts back to him, which is what Saul didn't do. You see, the passage wraps up with Saul appearing to repent. But he doesn't actually repent. So after much perseverance on Samuel's part, God's word finally exposes Saul's sins. So much so that he can't deny it himself. So verse 30, Saul says, I have sinned. What a great moment. But then notice that he doesn't actually repent. He recognizes he's done the wrong thing, but what matters to him isn't so much the love of God and the forgiveness that comes from God. What matters to him is the honor amongst the elders. It's his own reputation and standing in the community. But please honor me, he says, before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship who? The Lord your God. Three times in this passage, Saul doesn't say, my God, let me worship my God. I want to return to my God. But he says, your God, Samuel. He's your God, not my God. You see, Saul's primary concern isn't how God feels, but what the elders think. And that's a huge warning for us, isn't it? Because I think most of us would say that we're not perfect. We're willing to admit that. We're willing to say, sure, I have sinned. I'm not perfect. But this passage is telling us that that's not enough. It's not enough to know that you're not perfect. You must take the next step, and that is to repent, to seek forgiveness, to go back to God. But Saul doesn't do that. And it's a great tragedy, because even though he's been rejected as king, he could have still been reconciled as a man. His repentance was at best superficial because he only admits his sin so that he can keep what he wants and not to return back to God. You see, we spent the last few weeks looking at Saul and we've gotten to know Saul pretty well, haven't we? We've seen that he's an impressive man, a head taller than the rest, a true Israelite from the tribe of Benjamin. But we saw over and over again that as impressive as he was, he didn't concern himself, himself with the things of God, but with the things of man. He was more interested in talking about donkeys than doing what his hand finds him to do. Again and again, he was given opportunities to obey God's word. And again and again, he doesn't. It's never easy talking about the judgment of God, is it? whether that's on a nation like the Amalekites or on a person like Saul. But we need to. We must talk about the judgment of God. For when the apostle Paul found himself in Athens, in Acts chapter 17, he stood before the Areopagus. He told them about the unknown God that they did not know but knew existed. And so Paul tells them about this unknown God for whom he met on the road to Damascus. And Paul, being the chief of sinners, who persecuted the very church of God, told them in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, God has set a day when he will judge the world 
with justice by the man he has appointed. And this man is not Saul. This man that Paul speaks of, this man that God has appointed, is the man Jesus Christ. God's anointed, the king through whom God will judge the world with justice. You see, Saul's mission to judge the Malachites was a local, small-scale anticipation of the judgment of the world that is to come, of the final judgment that God will bring by the hands of God's anointed king. And our job now isn't to go on any crusades. They were wrong. Our fight isn't to fight in the name of Jesus with swords and spears. That's wrong. But instead, as far as it depends on us, we're to live at peace with everyone. We don't take revenge, but instead leave room for God's wrath. And so when we're wrong, we don't seek revenge. We leave it to God for the day of judgment. For the fight we have on our hands now isn't of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So there is no place for violence but only the proclamation of the gospel. And that must begin, not out there, on the streets, or in your workplace, or in your home, but in your hearts. As reflected in the writings of Thomas Cranmer, for what the heart loves, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. And the trouble with our hearts is that our hearts love above everything in this world, including God, is ourselves and our hearts will deceive us and so we need the probing and searching work of the word of God in our hearts so that we will see our sins like the light of day and repent before the appointed day and so if anyone were to write about our greatest achievement and play a game of who am I about our lives may it be that we recognize our sins, that we repented and put our faith in Jesus, and that we lived each and every day obeying him as our Lord. Nothing more, nothing less. For the glory of God. Amen.